Um, I have some news for you guys this morning. I've decided not to do Revelation after all. We're gonna do, we're gonna do Leviticus. So if you guys, would you be just as excited about Leviticus? Uh, maybe. Okay. Some of y'all, some of y'all are being honest. Some of y'all are lying. Open your Bibles for the first time for many weeks to come to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, it's on page 493. If you're using one of the Bibles, you may have picked up the do- at the door on the way in this morning. The book of Revelation, uh, page 493, chapter 1, verse 1. As you're doing that, real quick this morning, I want to give you an update. Some of you were here a couple of weeks ago when we had Chuck Ward from Mana Worldwide was here. He presented an incredible opportunity for the Orchard Church to uh, reopen, because it was destroyed in the earthquake in Haiti, but to reopen a feeding center for children in uh, the country of Haiti. They had been trying to fund that for about uh, $1,250 a month, but they didn't have any one particular church that was funding that. They've got to rebuild it and then it takes $1,250 a month, but it feeds children twice a day, about 200 kids. And uh, we gave you guys an opportunity to uh, fill out pledge cards and, and have a part in this personally. We were committed as a church, but also wanted to give you guys individually an opportunity uh, to get involved in this. And we, did, we didn't know what God was going to do, but I am really excited to tell you guys um, as of last Sunday, we have over $2,000 a month pledged toward the Feeding Center in Haiti. Isn't that exciting? We praise the Lord for that and that you guys are going to have a part in that. And so now, because we've had more than we even expected pledged, now that, now start giving it and it's got to come in through our missions. We are going to be able to do that much more for the Feeding Center, hopefully be able to feed more kids, um, help even rebuild in the project. We had over 40 people that signed up, said that you're interested in going on a trip to Haiti. We're looking at a couple of trips um, because we have 40 people. We'll probably try to take about you know 12 to 15 on each group. So I'm waiting to hear back from Chuck. He's talking to the pastor over there as far as timing and details and so we'll let you know as soon as we have all of that information and we're going to be able to go over there rebuild that feeding center and begin feeding those kids again in Haiti and on the front is going to say sponsored by the Orchard Church of Brighton Colorado isn't that exciting so thank you guys for Pledging now, you can. Some people have asked, now how do we give? Just give it. Um, uh, when you give it, put it in your envelope or online or however you do it. But put missions and just give it through the missions account, and we'll know that that's where that's going. And so as that comes in, we'll be able to give those funds. Uh, to Mana Worldwide. But thank you guys, those of you that pledged. If you haven't pledged already, go ahead and you can just give that through missions. And the more that comes in, the more that we can do and make a difference. And maybe we can even open more than one feeding center or feed a lot more kids there because of, of everything that's been pledged to that. So we really appreciate you guys and are excited about that opportunity. And we'll keep you guys posted as we know more uh, from them and the trips and all those kind of things. Well, we begin our new series today in the book of Revelation. It is called The Return of the King, A Journey Through Revelation. Some of you have already asked, how long is this going to take us? You know, is this going to take us like three years? Is this going to take us three months? Uh, and, and this is the way we study the Bible here. If you're a guest today, if this is your first time, uh, we study the Bible 90% of the time this way. We go to a book of the Bible, we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we work our way all the way through verse by verse. I'm planning on it taking about nine months. So this will probably take us up till about uh, Memorial Day, summer of next year. And uh, we're going to try to do a 
about a chapter a week. Some chapters will take a couple of weeks. And so just to kind of give you an idea, we're not planning on being in it nine years, but more like nine months. And you're going to have a really good handle and an overview of Revelation as we go verse by verse uh, through this. But we need to remember this as we're going through the book of Revelation. And as we study any book here at the Orchard Church, that this is a journey. It's not a race. Amen? It's not a race through Revelation, it's a journey through Revelation. And our goal here at the Orchard Church is never just to get through a book of the Bible. We've gone through eight books of the Bible in five years since we started this church. And our goal is never just to get through a book of the Bible, but that that book of the Bible would get through us. That's what we're looking for and that would make a difference. Now, as when we start book of the Bible, we always start out talking about the three most important rules of Bible study. Those of you that have been here for a while, help me out. What are the three most important rules of Bible study? Context, context, context. The teenagers were getting it better than some of you guys. That's, that's good. That's why we have them right down front. Good job, Jonah. Terry, he is listening. That's good. That's your boy there. Star for the day for Jonah. He's, he's faking it, he says. We want to always keep the book in its context. And I know that you're used to that when we start a book of the Bible, we do a full-blown introduction and kind of give you the overview, who wrote it, who was it written to, what was the time, what are the major themes. We're going to do that, but we're not going to do it today. We're going to do it next week. Today is just kind of the hook that gets you guys excited about why are we even studying the book of Revelation. A lot of churches, they avoid this book. They say it's too hard, it's too difficult, it's too confusing, it's too weird, it's too crazy. But there's, a, there's an important reason why we're choosing a very practical reason to study this. Today, let me just tell you this, this is what you need to know. It was written by the Apostle John. It was when he was on the Isle of Patmos, when he was exiled there because of preaching the gospel. God gave the message to his son Jesus. Jesus gave the message to his angel, and his angel showed up, and he gave the message to John, and he wrote it down, and we have it today. And we'll talk about this more next week, but notice this is a unique book of the Bible in its title. And hopefully in your Bibles you have this. It's the revelation, not really of John, but of who? Of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. And I know we sometimes hear that a lot. Oh, we're studying Revelations. No, we're studying Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. But we'll give you the full-blown introduction next week. So you've got to come back for that. So today I want us to answer the question, why are we choosing to study the book of Revelation? I mean, is this really relevant for us today? If these events are going to happen in the future... What future? How soon is this future? Begin with me. We're just going to look at the first three verses today to get our message. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, who? John who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Did you know there's a special blessing for those who read and study the book of Revelation? I believe God's going to uniquely bless you as an individual and us as a church corporately because we're choosing to study this book. This is a very important book to God, as all the books of the Bible are. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Now watch this. For the time is what? The time is near. That's what I want to talk about today. The time is near. How near? Let's pray and then let's dive into this. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for your word, for every book in the Bible. But Lord, we're especially excited about studying the book of Revelation. Your final plan for all of humanity and all of creation. As you've laid it out, Lord, you've not left us 
to guess at it or chance, but you've, you've told us in your word the things that are going to happen. And even though some of them are weird and crazy and unbelievable, we by faith believe every word of God. And I pray, Lord, that we would not just study the book of Revelation for the stories and the events, but that we would practically apply it to our lives today. That this book would get our attention and that we would understand beginning today how near the time really is to the return of you, our King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How near is the time of the event we'll be studying for the next nine months in the book of Revelation? I mean, how near is the return of the King? The King being Jesus Christ. How near is an event that some of you have heard of called the rapture or the end of the world? Well, I want you to watch this brief video. We asked some people on the street their thoughts on, is there an end of the world? How near is it? Here's what they had to say. Do you think the world will end? Um, someday, but probably billions of years from now. Do you think the world will have an ending point? I definitely think the world will have an ending point. Do you believe um, that the world will end? No. Will it end? I mean, no, I don't think it's anything to worry about. I mean, I think if you live your life to the best that you can live your life, you don't have to worry about it. Do you believe that the world will end? Um, sure. Everything must end sometime. Okay. Tell me, how do you think it's going to end? Uh, it's not my job. Um, I would think just some big disaster. I think something drastic, but... Uh, how do you think the world will end? Um, not sure. One possibility would be, um... Due to our actions, we're kind of destroying the environment, and that's going to affect all of us and humans eventually. Unfortunately, I think it'll end uh, with some type of uh, dictator, like a Hitler, getting in power again. Are you talking about, like, the Antichrist? Uh, yeah, I guess, kind of. How do you think the world will end? I can't answer that. I'm not exactly sure. Um, gave a little blow his trumpet, and whatever happened will happen. I think... Something inside the earth is going to explode and all the earth is going to explode and everyone will die. How do you think it will end? I think we'll just sort of burn ourselves out or be hit by a flying something from outer space. Do you think uh, God or a God um, has anything to do with the end of the world? Um, personally, I'm not really sure. I'm not convinced of that. Um, possibly. Do you believe that um, maybe the second coming of Christ will usher in this end? No. Tell me what you think about the belief that Christ will bring on the, the end of the world. Um, no, I don't think it will. <laughs> do you believe that the second coming of Christ will have anything to do with the end of the world? Probably not. Some confused people about these events that we're going to talk about. That God has clearly shown us in His Word. Did you know that the Bible talks about the end of the world and the return of Christ more than any other event in the Bible? It talks about this event, the return of Christ, the end of the world. One out of every 30 verses mentions Christ's return or the end of the world in some way. There are over 300 references in the New Testament alone to Christ's return and the end of the world. All but four of the New Testament books talks about the return of Christ. That's 20% of the New Testament talks about this event of the return of the King and how near it might be. But when? 
When is it going to be? How near is it? When John writes down here in verse 3, the time is near. How near are we, are we talking? Now my goal this morning, I want to tell you, is not to do any date setting or freak you out. Okay, But some of these things we're going to study are a little bit freaky. And we know that no man, Matthew 25, 13 says, no man knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows exactly when Christ is going to return. So anybody that comes along and says, Jesus is going to come back on this day at this time, the Bible tells you they do not know what they're talking about. Amen? However, the Bible does talk about knowing times and seasons. And being aware how close we can be. In First Chronicles 12.32, and I'm going to uh, mention a lot of references today. You can go back and check these out. We're not going to have time to go to all of them. But in First Chronicles 12.32, it talks about the children of Issachar who had understanding of the times they lived in so that they knew what they ought to do. We need to have an understanding of the times we live in according to the Bible and prophecy and what we ought to do and how close we are to the return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, it says this, Paul said, Therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And what are we watching for? The return of Jesus Christ. I think most of you know that this book, the Bible, is a book filled with what we call prophecies. Amen? It's full of prophecies. They're everywhere from beginning to end. Some of them are prophecies that, you know, something is foretold and then it happens, you know, in five years or ten years. Some things, they happen a thousand years after they're said that they were going to happen. That's what we call prophecies. God says, this is going to happen, and then years down the road it happens exactly the way God says. And I want you to understand, as people have tried to disprove the Bible and its validity, they've gone to the prophecies many times and tried to disprove them. And you know what they found? The Bible is never wrong. It's never been wrong one single time on any of its prophecies predictions. When God says something is going to happen, it happens exactly how He says it's going to happen. We know the book of Revelation is filled with prophecies of things that are to come that John says are near. And they are going to happen just as everything else has been fulfilled in Scripture. Did you know that there were over 114 Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ? They were given hundreds, some over a thousand years before He came. You know how many of those 114 prophecies Jesus fulfilled? 114! I mean, He fulfilled every single one of them. So when God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. Look at your notes with me, and we're going to write some stuff down. Let me tell you about the next prophetic event that God has on His time clock, on His calendar. The next thing that He tells us is going to happen that we need to be watching for. Here's what it is. A force from out of this world will enter into the earth's atmosphere and bodily remove off the face of this planet millions and millions of people. That's the next prophetic event on God's time clock that we are watching for. That is the next prophetic event that John says the time is near. Now the reaction of the world to this event, I'm not trying to freak you out today, but at that time when this event happens, when millions and millions of people in a split second vanish from the face of this earth, people are going to be freaked out. They're going to be really freaked out. I mean, the world is going to be in utter chaos. There's going to be panic. There's going to be distress. There's going to be planes dropping out of the sky because some of the pilots on those planes are believers and there's no one to fly the plane. There's going to be automobiles that the drivers just suddenly disappear because those people knew Jesus Christ and they were taken. There's going to be a, a, a drastic need for emergency vehicles and yet some of the emergency workers, the firefighters, the policemen, they're not available because they're gone. 
I believe there's going to be millions and millions of children and babies that disappear because I believe they're going to be taken in this event that we're talking about. Can you imagine the chaos and the panic on families when their baby is there one second and the next it's gone? It's nowhere to be seen. You know, we've seen microcosms of this kind of event with tragedies. When we think about the tsunami that happened in Thailand and all the people that died in a moment and, and all the chaos and panic that brought. We think about Hurricane Katrina and, and all of the loss in a moment's time. We think about the, the recent uh, earthquake in Haiti that we've talked about. We think of 9-11 and how that affected the United States of America and most of the world. But I want you to understand, all those events... And what that brought on and the reaction, that is just a microcosm of when this event happens. Because it's not going to be isolated to New York. It's not going to be isolated to Haiti. It's not going to be isolated to Thailand. It's going to be a worldwide event. This next event that God tells us in His Word over and over is about to take place. Let me give you the definition of this event. The biblical definition of this event. We call it what? The rapture. The rapture. Now, if you're going in your Bible and you're looking up and you know in your concordance trying to find the word rapture, let me save you some time. You're not going to see the word rapture, but you're certainly going to see the description of the event. The word rapture comes from the Latin word raptio. It means literally to remove or to take away. And you can go study it out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51 to 52. A couple of key passages that describes the rapture, the removal of the church, the removal of believers off the face of this earth. You all know what I'm talking about. Say amen. The rapture. That's the next event. And that event is going to trigger all the other events that we're going to be studying and learning about in Revelation. But I want you to understand, that force that's going to bodily remove millions of people, that force is not Luke Skywalker, okay? But it is a Skywalker, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's going to return in the clouds, and he is going to take away his church, the true believers in Jesus Christ. And he's going to show up, and only those who have truly put their faith in Christ are going to be taken at that event. And this event is going to trigger... All of the events we're going to read about and the return of Christ, the end of time, and the events recorded in the book of Revelation. But how close are we to that event? I mean, some of you are thinking, Oh, I remember Grandma and Grandpa used to talk about that. And it didn't happen. Mom and Dad used to talk about that. And it didn't happen. I mean, what makes us think that we're any closer to this event than they were? How near is this time? Would you like to know the answer to that question this morning? Well, we're going to look at some pretty amazing things in the Scripture to help us answer that. How near is this time? Let me give you two, factor, two factors that help us answer how near we are to that event and the events of the last days. The first factor that we're going to look at is called the Israel factor. The Israel factor. Now, now listen, I'm going to tell you this is, this is amazing what we're going to see. When, when Caitlin, our daughter was uh, really little. She was about four or five years old. Uh, she's still in drama today, you know, and she's our entertainer. And she would uh, have some song or show that she had prepared and she would come into the room and she'd say, Mom and Dad, sit down. I need to show you this. And she would always say this before she would, she would begin. She'd say, Prepare to be amazed. <laughs> well, I'm just telling you all this morning, Prepare to be amazed, not at what I have to show you, but what you're going to see in the Word of God. And the first key factor is the Israel factor. Now you need to understand some things about the nation of Israel. The small, little, seemingly insignificant uh, piece of land in the Middle East, no bigger than like the state of New Jersey, yet it seems to be the focus of the world all the time. Have you noticed that? 
How could such a small little place in relation to the rest of the world draw so much attention you can't hardly watch the news, nightly news without Israel coming up in some way? Here's why. Israel, that nation, is the great sign to prove the existence of God and that the Bible is true. That's what God tells us all throughout Scripture. But He uses that nation to reveal Himself and do His work. And there are some amazing key prophecies relating to the nation of Israel throughout the Scriptures that you need to understand. In Genesis chapter 12 verse 2, we remember the story that God came to a man named Abraham and He said, I'm going to make out of your seed a great nation. What nation was He talking about? Israel. And he said, I'm going to bless this nation more than any nation in the world, and I'm going to bless it so much that the rest of the world is going to want to know about the God that has blessed you and the God you serve. Now in 1 Kings chapter 10, we see the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nation of Israel to the point that the other nations would want to come and find out about the God they serve. In 1 Kings chapter 10, you see Solomon ruling on a throne in Jerusalem, and God had tremendously blessed that nation and blessed Solomon, and you have the other nations of the world coming to talk to him and find out about the God they were serving. Specifically in 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba showed up and was like, hey, I want, I want to know about this God. I want to know about these blessings. Let us in on that. And so God fulfilled the prophecy just as he said he would. But God also said this to the nation of Israel, if you follow me and you trust me and you obey my word, I will bless you and I will use you in a great way to show myself real on, on the in relation to the rest of the world. But if you do not follow me, if you do not trust me, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you. And I will scatter you as a nation into all the other nations of the world for your apostasy. The word apostasy means to fall away. And so God prom promised to bless the nation of Israel if they followed Him and obeyed Him. They, but God promised to scatter the nation of Israel throughout the world if they disobeyed. Are we all on the same page so far? Now in Hosea 9.17, this is what it says. I think we've got this verse to put on the screen. My God will cast them away, talking to the nation of Israel, because they did not obey Him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. That's what God told them for their disobedience. And then in the last days though, even though they would be scattered throughout the nations for their disobedience, God said though, in the last days, before my return... I'm going to bring you back together again as a nation. I'm going to restore you to your homeland. Here's one of many prophecies that talks about that. In Ezekiel 37:21, it says this, Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, because they had been scattered for disobedience, wherever they have gone, and I'll gather them from every side and bring them into their what? Own land. They've been scattered for disobedience, but in the last days, I'm going to bring them back together again in their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land. So you guys are with me so far. You've got to really hang with me today on all of this. God promised to gather them together as a nation in the last days before the return of Christ. Did you know that no other nation or civilization or people group and the history of the world has ever been removed and scattered from their homeland and yet was able to retain their identity and come back together? There's only one that's done that. And it's guess what nation? 
the nation of Israel. And that has happened because God said it would happen. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24 verse 3, because Jesus says something incredible about the last days and the nation of Israel and when they would come back together again in the homeland like God had promised. Matthew 24, verse 3, it's on page 401 if you're using one of the provided Bibles this morning. Matthew 24, verse 3. Now again, get the context. Jesus is with His disciples, and His disciples, like all of us, boy, we're packed out this morning because everybody wants to know about the last days. Everybody wants to know about the end of the world. Everybody wants to know about the end of, you know, time and the return of Christ. And the disciples were asking this. I mean, when He came the first time, they're already asking about, when are you coming again? And they're asking this, and look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your what? Of your coming. And the end of the age, or the end of the world, they're going, we want to know, Jesus. We're your disciples. Come on, throw us a bone. Give us a hint. Now watch, Jesus begins to answer their question. Look at verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, there will be pestilences, which is diseases that can't be cured. There will be earthquakes in various places. That sounds like we're reading the front page of the USA Today. He says, you're going to start seeing all those kinds of things. Earthquake after earthquake, and war after war, and pestilence, you know, disease after disease, and, you know, virus after virus that nobody can seem to find a cure, and everybody's getting it. And he says, you're going to start seeing that, and that's the setup for the return of Christ. Now, now we're going to talk about this all throughout the book of Revelation. This is where people get really confused. When you talk about the return of Christ, you need to be specific. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the rapture? Are we talking about the literal physical return of Christ when He sets foot back on this earth? Those are two separate events. First is the rapture where He comes in the clouds and we go up to meet Him. The second coming of Christ is when He comes to the earth and we come back with Him seven years after the tribulation. Don't worry, we'll go into all the details of all those things. But I want to make sure we're clear. When Jesus is talking here about the second coming, He is not talking about the rapture. He's talking about the second coming of Christ when He comes back to the earth. So if you think it looks like we're close to that, how much closer are we to the rapture? Well, we're at least seven years. Some of you are like, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm mid-trib, I'm, we'll get into all that, okay? We'll get into all that. Don't worry, I'll, I'll straighten you guys out through the Word of God on that. Okay, listen. So he's answering this question. Now, then he goes into the Great Tribulation, which is interesting because they're talking about the Second Coming, but then he backs up to the Rapture, and then he starts talking about the Tribulation period, that seven-year period, and he does that for verse 15 to 28, and then 29 to 31, he starts talking about the literal Second Coming of Christ, back to the earth to rule and reign. Now watch what he says in verse 32. Do not miss this. This is huge. He says, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. You know, we know that Jesus was constantly using parables. He was using a physical story to teach a spiritual truth, right? And he's doing the same thing here. He's using the fig tree to illustrate something else. And he's saying, you want to know how near my return is? When you see the fig tree begin to blossom, you know summer's coming. But you also, when you see these things happen, you know that I'm coming. But he specifically uses the fig tree 
For more than just using a fig tree. And you need to get this. He says, when you see the fig tree, bring forth leaves, know that summer's near. So you also, when you see all these things, know it is what? It is near. What's near? The return of Christ. It's at the doors. And assuredly, now watch this, verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. I want you guys to understand, Bible scholars have agreed for a long time on this one. There's very little disagreement on this. That the fig tree in the Bible is a picture of a specific nation. Any guesses which nation the fig tree is a picture of? Israel. It's all throughout Scripture. If I, I could take an hour today and show you all the places in the Bible where God likens Israel to a fig tree. Hosea 9.10, check it out. Jeremiah 24.5, Matthew 21, just before the very same day he's talking about the fig tree here. Just the, a few hours before that, he cursed the fig tree. He was definitely talking about the nation of Israel because they were rejecting the Messiah. So when he says, when you see the fig tree begin to take shape and begin to bud and begin to blossom, know that my return is near, he's talking about the nation of Israel. And he says, when you see the nation of Israel gathered back together and begin to bud and begin to grow, what does he say in verse 24? The generation of people that sees that event happen will not pass away until all these things take place. All what things? The rapture, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. Now some of y'all know where I'm going with this. But let me help you out. Oh, and just to help you out, if you don't believe that Israel is a fig tree, you're going to have a hard time convincing Israel of that. Let me show that picture. This is a picture of the emblem of Israel. Can we put that up there? This is the emblem of the nation of Israel. You see those leaves on either side? Guess what kind of leaves those are? They're fig leaves. They know what the fig tree is a picture of. And we need to understand it today. Now listen, here's the deal, guys. We went almost 2,000 years with Israel being scattered throughout the nations of the world. They were not in their homeland. They were not there. Almost 2,000 years, because in 70 AD, the Roman Empire went in and they destroyed Jerusalem and they took them captive and they spread all the Jews throughout the world everywhere. And for almost 2,000 years, they were not a nation. They were not in their homeland, just as God prophesied and said would happen. You know, this confused Bible scholars for many years because they would study the Scriptures and the Scripture was, would say over and over that for the Messiah to return in the second coming of Christ, the nation of Israel had to be a nation and they had to be in their homeland. Yet we went year after year and century after century and 1,500 years and 1,600 years and 1,700 years and 1,800 years and the nation of Israel was not a nation. They were not in their homeland and they were like, have we misinterpreted scripture? Because we don't see how it's possible for Israel to ever become a nation again. You can go back and study history and see what I'm exactly what I'm talking about. But does anybody remember what happened on May 14, 1948? Israel became a nation again as recognized by the entire world. When God says something's going to happen, y'all, it happens. And then Bible scholars immediately, I mean, when that event took place, they were like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what God said would happen in the last days, that the nation of Israel would be gathered together again, they would be in their homeland. That happened 62 years ago. Now remember what Jesus said? 
The generation that sees that happen will pass away without seeing all these things take place. Does that give anybody else but me chills? <laughs> in 19... <coughs> excuse me. In 1917, because of the Balfour Declaration in Europe, the nation of Israel was able to go back. It, it had never even happened before that a nation could be scattered and still retain their identity. Yet they did. That in and of itself is supernatural. And here is the key this morning. Jesus said the generation that sees Israel come back together and begin to blossom and grow, they would see the return of Christ. You say, I don't know about that. Maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe not. Special report. You know, you're watching the news. Special report. We got a Bible special report this morning. Note the time... Am I doing something wrong here, James? Note the timing concerning the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Back in your notes. Though the Bible does not give specific times in dealing with the church. The church. We're living in the church age. The Bible is always specific concerning the events that have to do with the nation of Israel. Because that's the nation God has chosen to reveal Himself through. Let me give you a case in point. And there are many I could give you. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. It says this, he said, God said this to Abraham, Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants, Israel, will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them for how many years? 400 years. God said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, but know that there's going to be a time come because of the disobedience and things. They're going to be, they're going to be slaves. They're, they're going to be in bondage and captivity in a nation that is not the nation of Israel. They're going to be there how many years? 400 years. Do you all remember when the nation of Israel went into captivity and they were in Egypt? And they were made slaves in Egypt? In Exodus 12.40, here's what it says. Now the sojourn of the time of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt, just like God said, was 430 years. Uh-oh. We got, we got an error in the Bible right there. Got a, got a contradiction. We can't really trust God's Word. Listen, this is one of the things we teach in how to study the Bible. There are no contradiction, contradictions in the Bible. Only apparent contradictions. And let me show you what I'm talking about because this is really cool. God said they would be in Egypt for 400 years. You come to Exodus and it says they were in bondage. They were in Egypt 430 years. And it came to pass in the end of the 430 years on that very same day, just like God said, it came to pass that all the enemies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Remember that with Moses and that whole thing across the Red Sea? You all remember that? Now, let me help you out with the 400 versus the 430. God said they would be in captivity and bondage for 400 years, yet it says in Exodus they were there for 430 years. Well, check it out. Genesis 15, 13 to Exodus 1, 8. There's a 30-year period where the nation of Israel is in Egypt, but they're not in bondage and captivity because the Pharaoh was favorable to them. Remember, that's the guy that Joseph worked for and he brought his family down there because of the famine. And for 30 years they were there, but they were not in captivity. And then it says in Exodus that a new Pharaoh came on the scene and he's the one that put them in bondage for 400 years. It's all in the Bible. It's all right there. It clears it right up. And just like God said, the prophecy of 400 years was fulfilled the very day God said it would. It's very specific to the day about Israel. Now that one may not do much for you. I know that happened like, you know, 4,000 years ago. But I think this next prophecy will. Let me give you an amazing prophetic discovery. Now, I, I, I didn't even give you all the notes on this. It's going to be hard to write all this down. Go back online and watch this and you can get it. You can jot down what you can. But I want to take you through something amazing. How specific God... God is about Israel. Remember God's promise to Israel. He said He'd make them a great nation, but He would scatter them if they disobeyed. Right? 
Are we on the same page? And we've seen that happen already once. In 606 B.C., Israel goes into what was called the Babylonian captivity for their disobedience, just like God prophesied. How many of you all remember studying about the Babylonian captivity? God told them exactly how long they would be there and be punished for their disobedience. It was 70 years. In Jeremiah 25.11, God said this, And this whole land, Israel, shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How many years? 70 years. That's what God said. 70 years. God told them they would be there and they would be punished for 70 years. Now, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, in 536 B.C., on the first day of the month of Nisan, the biblical calendar, 70 years to the day, there was a king of Persia, King Cyrus, and he made a decree that Israel could be set free and they could go home. Seventy years to the day. It's recorded right in the scripture. Just like God said. Only here was the problem. Only a remnant, a small group of Israel chose to go back to their homeland. Most of them chose to remain disobedient to God and stay in the very wicked, evil Babylon. And they did not obey God. You see, not only were they in Babylon for seventy years, but Babylon was in them. God said you'll be there 70 years. The king makes a decree, the first of Nisan. He says you can go, but only a few left. The rest stayed there. And as a whole, the nation of Israel remained in disobedience. Now do you think God was surprised by that? You think God was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea they were going to do that. He's God. He knew exactly what they were going to do. And during that 70 years of Babylonian captivity, he gave a prophecy to the prophet uh, Ezekiel. And listen to what he said. In Ezekiel 4, verse 3 through 6. Now this is kind of weird, but hang with me. This is amazing when you see this, how, God, how detailed God is. This prophecy during the 70 years of Babylonian captivity says this, Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it and, it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of who? Israel. He's like, I want you to take a nap on a pan. And it's going to be a sign to Israel. And then God is specific about the sign. He says this, Lie on your left side and lay the iniquity or the sin of the house of Israel, their disobedience upon it. According to the number of the days you lie on it, for you, you shall bear their iniquity or sin. Now watch this. For I have laid on you the, what? Years. He says, you're only going to have to do this for a few days, but those days represent years. So the days are a sign of years for their iniquity or sin according to the number of the days. And he gives it to him. 390 days or 390 years you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side and you'll bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Because it was a divided kingdom at that time, uh, Israel and Judah. He said, lie on that side for 40 days, which would represent how many years? Forty years. I have la- And he says it again. I have laid on you a day for each year. God is very specific. So watch this. During the Babylonian captivity, God gives this prophecy to Ezekiel. Each day represents a year. He says, lie thir- 390 days on your left for Israel. Lie 40 days on your right for Judah. That's a total of 430 days or 430 years. I mean, was God specific or what? You all with me? You all following this? Now Israel... 
had to be judged for their sin and their disobedience for 430 years because they remained in disobedience. They had already served 70 years in Babylon. They had already served 70. So you take 430 minus 70, they had 360 years to go to be punished because of their disobedience and sin. 360 years from 536 B.C. If you move from 536 B.C. when they could have all went home and they didn't, and you go 360 years from there, that should have been a very significant day for the nation of Israel. It should have been a day of freedom. Because now their punishment was done, they were freed. 536, go 360 years, it takes you to 176 B.C. Now those of you all that know your Bible, do you know what happened in the nation of Israel's history in 176 B.C.? Nothing! (laughs) Nothing! This should have been a significant day! But we got to take all the Bible in its context... And we can't miss what we'll call the Leviticus principle. We really are going to talk about Leviticus today for a moment. The Leviticus principle. Don't miss this. In Leviticus, it's talking in the context of the promises for obedience to God and the promises for punishment for disobedience to God, especially when it comes to the nation of Israel. And listen to what it says. It says it several times. Leviticus 26.18 says, And after all this, after you've been punished, Israel, if you still do not obey me, I'll punish you, how many more times? Seven times more for your sins. And just in case they thought God was joking, He brings it up again. Leviticus 26.23, And if by these things you are not reformed by me, you know, you were supposed to only be there 70 years, but you decided to continue to stay in evil, wicked Babylon, you didn't obey me. He says, if you're not reformed, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. I'll punish you yet seven times more for your sins. He then says it one more time. Uh, chapter 26, verse 27, And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary, I will walk contrary to you in fury. Now God's mad. And I will chastise you seven times for your sins. Now listen, God, you've heard me say this before, God does not stutter. When God says something over and over again, I think He's trying to send us a message, amen? He's trying to make it clear to the nation of Israel. If Israel would not repent after being judged by God, He would prolong their punishment times seven. That's the Leviticus principle. Now let's go back. In 536 B.C., They had an opportunity to repent, but they did not. They stayed in Babylon. They had 360 years to go because of Ezekiel's prophecy. But you take those 360 biblical years, now you've got to times them times 7. That's what Leviticus tells us. That's 2,520 years that God said, I'm going to punish you, and you're not going to be in your homeland, and you're going to be scattered throughout the world. Now watch this. If you go from 536 B.C. and you go 2,520 years and you plug it into our calendar today, guess what the date is? May 14th, 1948. To the day. Just like God said. That's the day Israel became a nation again. God promised that would happen in the last days. And He said the generation that sees that happen will not pass away. I mean, we're just putting the numbers together that God gives us in His Word. Now, I know some of you are, are quicker on your feet in math. And you're doing the calculations in your head. Some of you got your iPhones out right now where your calculator go, Wait, I'm going to see 536 BC, 25,000. Wait, Pastor, that does not compute! That doesn't take me to 1948. It takes me to like 1984. 
If you take 360 years times 7, let me help you out here, okay? I want to help you. If you take 360 years times 7, I think we would all agree that's 2,520 years. Is my math correct on that? Some of you are like, I don't know. It is. Check it out. But here's what we need to remember. A biblical year is not the same as our year today. You see, we work on the Gregorian calendar. The Bible works on the Julian calendar. The biblical calendar, the Julian calendar, is not 365 days. It's 360 days. So, if you take the biblical calendar, 360 days times 2,520 years, the remainder of their punishment, that equals 907,200 days. We've got to put it in the biblical calendar because that's what God works off of. That's 907,200 days. Now, how does that translate into our calendar? Well, we have to divide 907,200 days by 365.25 because every fourth year is a leap year. That's our calendar. So when you divide 907,200 days by our calendar, uh, 365.25, it's 2,483.8 years. Now, if you go 2,483, 38.8 from 536 B.C. It's not 1948, but it's real close. It's 1947.8. Say, okay, well, we're missing a year. Why are we missing a year? Well, you remember our calendar? We have 1 B.C. and then we have 1 A.D. There's no year zero, so you've got to add a year back into the total. And when you do that, you can run the math at home from Nisan the 1st, 536 B.C. If you go 907,200 days, it is exactly May the 14th, 1948. Is God awesome or what? Are we, can we use this one? And the demons just keep possessing our sound system. <laughs> We're working on this. God said this would happen in the last days. Jesus, and here's what's the important thing today, guys. God's, Jesus said when you see that happen to Israel, that that generation of people that sees that event happen, May 14th, 1948, Israel become a nation again and begin to blossom, that all the prophecies of the last days will be f- fulfilled beginning with the rapture of the church. That ought to be really exciting to us. Because we've seen that happen. In our generation, some of you saw it happen in your life when you were alive. You saw it. You remember it. You heard about it. Now there's the, there's the, there's a little bit of debate. You know, okay, well, how long is a generation in the Bible? Okay, uh, well, there's some varying interpretations, but most believe that a generation in the Bible is seventy to eighty years. Check out Psalm ninety, verse ten. Sometime David. Years ago, David, the psalmist, said a man's life is going to be about 70 to 80 years. That was back in a time when people weren't living 70 to 80 years. And yet that's what he said 3,000 years ago. Did you know the most recent World Almanac in the United States said that the average lifespan in the United States today is 77.26 years. The average lifespan today in Israel is 78.71 years. If you want to live a year longer, go to Israel. I mean, so it's 70 to 80 years. 62 years have passed since the nation of Israel was officially declared a nation again and brought back to their homeland just like God said would happen. 62 years have passed. Now Jesus was talking about His second coming, His little return. I believe you've got to back up seven years from that. So 62 plus 7, that's 69 years have passed. 69 from 80 is 11. 
I believe we are right in the time where Christ could return. God is a God of order, and He doesn't miss a trick. And when He says it's something He's going to do, He's going to do it. I remember when we took our our church trip to Israel just this last year, and when we were in Israel, the the Jewish um, tour guide that we were with, he he was a Jew, but he was not a practicing Jew. He was not a believer. He actually was kind of, he kind of said he was probably more agnostic. And I asked him about this. I said, you know, do you know much about, you know, your, your, your heritage and the nation of Israel and the prophecies of Scripture? He's like, yeah, I actually do. I mean, I know, you know, we all have to learn it and study it in school and all those things. I said, do you understand the prophecies in the Bible about you guys becoming a nation again? And do you remember what happened May 14th, 1948, after, you know, almost 2,000 years? And nobody thought that would ever happen. And I said, what do you think is the significance of that? And here's what he said to me. He goes, you know what? I have to admit, that very event you're talking about right there makes me wonder if maybe this Bible isn't true after all. That's what he said. It was that significant of an event. I personally believe that we are living in the generation that will see the Lord's return. I really personally believe that. Now we've seen the Israel factor. Can I give you one more real quick this morning? This one's a lot quicker than the last one. Alright? I promise. Can I give you one more? Okay, good, because I'm going to. Okay. The Israel factor. Let me give you the Y2K factor. You know, there was a lot of hype about the year 2000. You all remember that? Y2K is coming. Y2K is coming. We're going to die. You know, we're not going to have lights. We're not going to have power. We're not going to have anything. You know, and I remember I remember on New Year's Eve, you know, uh, 1999, you know, December 31st, I was just waiting for something crazy to happen and nothing happened. I was kind of like, man, that's a bummer. You know, I'm kind of weird like that. But here's the big question. Does the Bible say anything about the 21st century we're living in today and the year 2010? I believe it does. And you've got to look at the number 7 in the Bible. The number 7 in the Bible is a very significant number. When God counts, He does so by 7. In the beginning of the Bible, you know there are 7 days a week that are established by God. Did you know that most everything else is established? God established it in creation. The, the moon and the sun and a day, the sun comes up, it goes down. Um, the seasons, all that. But you know that the creation did not in any way establish 7 days. The only thing that established 7 days is God. And yet the whole world operates on this 7 day week system. I mean that, that's just from God. You know that in the Bible there's six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. You see in the law, God said six days, Israel, you're supposed to work. On the seventh day, you're supposed to take a break. You're supposed to rest. You know, six years, you work the land. The seventh year, you let it lay fallow. Seven is the number of completion and perfection in the Bible. You have that in your notes. It's the number all throughout the Bible of completion and perfection. You hit the number seven in the Bible and you start over again. Just like seven days of the week, the eighth day, boom, you're at one again. You're at the first day of the week. Let me give you some of the examples of the significance of the number seven in the Bible. Don't even try to write these down. Noah took two animals in the ark, but did you know that he also took seven of the clean ones, the sacrificial animals? The Bible says the perfect animals. There are seven days of grace before the rain and the floods came. Jacob served seven years for Rachel. There are seven years of plenty in the Bible and then seven years of famine in Egypt. Joshua, remember when the walls of Jericho would have come down? What did God tell him? I want you to march seven times around Jericho. On the seventh day, march seven times with seven priests blowing seven trumpets. In the tabernacle, there's a candlestick with seven branches. Solomon's temple took seven years to complete the temple of God. And then there was a seven-day feast after the temple was complete. Job, in the book of the Bible, we know was a perfect and upright and mature man. He had seven sons. He had seven friends that set seven days. They set seven nights in silence. They offered seven rams and seven bullocks to God in sacrifice. 
Naaman the leper, when God cleansed him and healed him, he told him to go and, and wash seven times in the Jordan. On the mercy seat, the blood was sprinkled by the priest seven times. Israel today has seven feasts. Jesus spoke seven times on the cross. In the book of Acts, they said, choose out seven men to be deacons. Paul wrote seven letters to seven churches. Now when you get to the book of Revelation that we're going to be studying, God, in the completion of the Bible, the completion of humanity, the completion of God's plan, He goes wild and crazy with the number seven. We're going to study seven churches from seven spirits. There's a burning seven lamp of fire. There's seven stars uh, to seven angels of the seven churches. There's a sevenfold description of Christ in Revelation. There's a sevenfold description of heaven. There's a seven sealed book held by a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes that bring forth a sevenfold praise to God. The seventh seal is open and then you see seven angels sounding seven trumpets pouring out seven vials, seven last plagues. You get to Revelation chapter 12 verse 13. There's seven beasts with seven heads, a dragon with seven heads, seven crowns, seven mountains, seven kings, seven dooms and seven new things and she sells seashells by the seashore. Now, why did I take time to do that? I think God's trying to tell us something about seven. It's God's number. Fifty-nine times in your Bible, seven is a sign of completion and perfection. Fifty-nine times. But what does the number seven have to do with us today in 2010 and the return of Christ? A lot. Go with me real quick to Genesis chapter 1. First book of your Bible. It's on page 1. Genesis chapter 1. We've got to hit this quick, but you've got to see this. Genesis chapter 1. This is when God is creating. It's the creation week. It's seven days long. Six days God works. The seventh He rests. And you've got to see this. We're going to do, we're going to do this quickly. Chapter 1, verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. So the evening and the morning were the what? First day. You know, some people say, you know, do, do you think... God literally created these things in a day. I think God, if you believe the Bible literally, it says in the evening and the morning were the first day. God did it in one day. I mean, He's God. All He has to do is say, let there be light. He can handle it. He didn't even need a day. just needed a few minutes. But the evening and the morning were the first day. Look at verse 8. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Jump down to verse 13. The evening and the morning were the third day. Jump down to verse uh, 19. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And so, and he goes, continues on creating. Verse 23. The evening and the morning were the fifth day. You come down to verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Alright. Do you see a pattern here? God says the evening and morning were first day. Evening and morning second day. Evening and morning third day. And each day says evening and morning. That's the day. But look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. In how many days? Six days. He finished his creation in six days. Six evenings and mornings. And on the seventh day, God rested. On the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his works, which he had done. And God blessed the seventh day. And he sanctified it. He said, this is my day. This is the seventh day. This is the Lord's day. This is a special day. He sanctified it. He set it apart because he had rested from all his work which the Lord God created and made. And this is the history of the heavens and the earth that were created in the days and so on and so on and so on. Okay. Is there anything missing on the seventh day? Did you all catch it? Evening and morning on the first day. Evening and morning on the second day. Evening and morning. Where's the evening and the morning on the seventh day? 
Oh, God forgot to mention it that day. Yeah, right. God does not forget. He's laying a pattern for those who are studious. Studious? Is that the word? I'm not studious enough to say it. To, to study the Word of God and dig in for the nuggets and find out what is God trying to show us for the diligent and those that will really look at this. And there's no evening and there's no morning. And God is, we serve a God of order and detail. And there's a reason He left it out. Why is there no evening and morning? He breaks the pattern on the seventh day. And He says, this is a day that has no evening and no morning. And He blesses it. He sanctifies it. He sets it apart. And He says, that's my day. That's the Lord's day. That's the day of the Lord. And He rested. Why did God need to rest? I mean, was He really tired? Oh, I'm so tired of speaking the universe into order. What was this day of rest really all about? Well, we have the rest of Scripture to help us understand this. Second Peter 3, 7. Listen to this. Peter says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. I mean, if you, don't miss this. And he's talking about the last days and the second coming of Christ. And he says, if you want to know something about the second coming of Christ, don't miss this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So to God, one day is like a thousand years. You plug Second Peter into Genesis chapter 1 and what he's telling us here, he also talks about it in the book of Psalm. We don't have time to go there. And you, here's what many Bible scholars believe. And you, I wish we had time to go into all this. You can study it out because it's throughout Scripture. Many Bible scholars believe, and I personally believe, that God has laid a pattern of about 6,000 years of human history Then there's going to be a 7,000 year and the 7,000th year is not man's year but that's God's thousand years and that's what we're going to study in the book of Revelation where God, Jesus comes back and he gets on a throne in Jerusalem and he rules and reigns and guess how long he rules and reigns for? A thousand years it's the theme of the Bible, the day of the Lord the second coming, in the Old Testament it's talked about everywhere over 800 times in the Old Testament, it talks about the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ. He hasn't even come the first time, and they're talking about the second time. When He's going to make everything right, and He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And, and it's, they talk about it so much that you'll, you'll notice in the Old Testament, and in that day. You'll just see those two words, that day. And when they use the phrase, that day, everybody knew, oh, that day. The day Jesus is coming back. The day He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. That's the day. It's talked about over 800 hundred times. Now listen to Revelation 20 verse 6. It describes this day. It says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God of Christ and shall reign with him. How long? A thousand years. And Revelation 20, we'll look at it in detail several months from now. And it describes this day as a thousand year day. It's a time of rest not so much for God, but it says it's a time of rest for Christians with Jesus in Israel. It's a time that Revelation 20, listen to this, this is so cool. It describes it as a thousand year long day. And there's no evening and there's no morning. Because Jesus, the light of the world, is back on the scene. And you don't need the sun and the moon when the light of the world is here. And it's going to last a thousand years. And He's going to provide the light. You say, okay, what's the big deal? What does that have to do with us in 2010? Well, I believe the 21st century marks the completion of the sixth day. I believe that we're living in about 6,000 years of human history. I know there are people that don't believe that and they'll debate that. But you have to decide. 
There's a pattern that God lays out in Scripture that man gets six days or 6,000 years of days. The seventh day, the 7,000th year is God's day. And that's when Christians will rule and reign with them. Now, I'm not date setting. We don't, yeah, unfortunately, Adam and Eve didn't keep a nice little calendar they passed on to us. But if you just go study it out and just check it out, you'll see about 6,000 years. About 4,000 years of human history before Christ and 2,000 years since. You say, well, I don't know about all this. I think Pastor Doug has lost his mind now. Listen, I'm not the first one to come up with this. Look in your notes real quick. There's a couple of quotes here. Rabbi Elias in 200 B.C. 200 years before Christ came the first time. Look at what he said. The world endures 6,000 years. 2,000 before the law, 2,000 under the law, and 2,000 years under Messiah. Barnabas in 70 A.D. Remember Barnabas, Paul's buddy? Remember what Barnabas? Listen to what he said. And God made in six days the works of his hands. He finished them on the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day and sanctified it. Consider, my children, what this signifies. He finished them in six days. The meaning of it is this, that in 6,000 years the Lord God will bring all things to an end. For with him one day is a thousand years, as him himself testifies, saying, Behold, this day shall be as a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is 6,000 years, shall all things be accomplished. And what is it that he saith? And he rested the seventh day, he meaneth this, that when the sun shall come and abolish the season of the wicked one, the Antichrist, we'll study about that in Revelation, and judge the ungodly and shall change the sun and moon and the stars and he shall gloriously rest in the seventh day. The millennial reign of Christ. You can check, there's other quotes. I wish we had time. You guys go check it out. On your own. Go this afternoon and read Matthew chapter 16 verse 27 to chapter 17 verse 2. And watch how many days happen before Jesus shows His glory exactly what He's going to look like when He comes back. Just check it out for yourself. I believe, y'all, the reason we need to study the book of Revelation is because of this. The time is near. What if I'm wrong? I could be. It might be another hundred years. I don't know. I'm just showing you what I've seen in Scripture, what other people have recognized... To get our attention and show us how near the time is. I, I tell you what, that Matthew or that uh, uh, May 14th, 1948, and Jesus said, when you see that happen, that generation won't pass away. That ought to get our attention, y'all. There's something to do with six days and the seventh day God's rest. There's something to do with those thousand years. You've got to deal with it. You've got to answer it for yourself. Listen, I may be wrong. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm certainly not saying I know the day that Jesus Christ is coming back. I do not. But I do believe the time is near. And here's the deal. And I'll close with this. I would much rather live in expectation and believing Jesus could come at any day, at any moment, than live my life thinking it's not going to happen and I'm surprised. And that's why it's important for us to study the book of Revelation.